is going to be in Luke chapter 7, as we're going to start near the end of that chapter. Luke 7, verse 36, and then we'll be going to chapter 8, verse 3. Luke 7, verse 36, if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. I invite you now to stand for the reading of, our, of God's Word, if you are able. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to him, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we we spend time once again on the Lord's day in your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work in our hearts and in our minds, that indeed we might not be the same people who leave as who came in. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I uh, heard the story about a woman who bought a parrot for a pet. All the parrot did was treat her very badly. It had insulted her at every time she tried to pick it up, it would peck her arm. One day she got fed up with this particular parrot. As it was insulting her, she picked it up and it continued with the insults. You're ugly. I can't stand you and it pecked at her arm as she carried it. 
So she went over to the refrigerator, opened the freezer door, and threw him in and closed the door. From inside, the parrot was still going on for about five seconds, and then suddenly it went quiet. She thought, oh no, I've killed it. She opened the door, and the parrot just looked at her. She picked it up, then the parrot said, I'm very sorry, I apologize for my bad behavior and promise you there will be no more of that. From now on, I will be a respectful, obedient parrot. Well, okay, she said, apology accepted. The parrot said, well, thank you. Then he said, can I ask you something? She said, yeah, what? The parrot looked at the freezer and asked, what did the chicken do? As a Christian, I believe that forgiveness transforms. It transformed this parrot. As we uh, look at the rearview mirror over this last year and look forward to the new year ahead, I'd like to invite you into this text this morning. And in the text, we are invited to a dinner, a dinner party. Jesus is invited to the dinner and he accepts the invitation, even though the Pharisees have opposed him at nearly every turn of his ministry, he still accepts the opportunity to meet with some of them. Now let's, uh, let's take a closer look at the setting so that we get a good picture of the event. He comes, and as we'll see shortly, he's not offered the usual customary welcome that an honored guest would often receive. But we're not told that yet. Rather, the picture zooms in to Jesus reclining beside the table on cushions. Since Jesus has come, a well-known teacher of some renown by now, in that culture, the doors and windows would remain open in the house so that people of that community can enter into the edge of the room and listen in on the discussion. So if you... uh, like to keep notes, you'll find an outline in your uh, bulletin there, and point one on that outline is a woman breaks with custom and moves from the sidelines as a mere observer and instead becomes an important player. See, without saying anything, she approaches Jesus while he's reclining. Now, we don't know the identity of this woman. We're not given her name. Some make this passage parallel with the events uh, recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, where Mary, the sister of Lazarus, and Martha, uh, she she comes and she breaks a jar of nard on Jesus' feet. But the setting here is completely different, and the events are described very differently, so it's clearly not the same event. Ultimately, we don't know the name of this woman or what her sins are. Many have guessed that she is a prostitute or a promiscuous woman, but ultimately we don't know. But what we do know is that she boldly enters the room, breaking quite severely with custom, and anoints Jesus' feet with a jar of very expensive perfume like myrrh, which was often used for burial or for the purification of priests. Make no doubt about it. And this is point two on your outline. Luke is telling us that this was an act of great sacrifice. 
See, the going rate for the perfume was about 300 denarii, or an average person's wages for an entire year in that day. Her actions would be how a very rich person treated a very, very important guest. But then she goes beyond that. Moved with great love, she weeps and kisses his feet in complete and total humility. See, Simon the Pharisee is shocked by Jesus' actions or his non-action and his attitude. In fact, the way it's written in the Greek makes it clear that Simon seriously doubts the divine and prophetic credentials of Jesus. There's amazing irony in this verse. Simon clearly cannot see how a godly rabbi could allow the touch of the sinful woman if he truly knew who this woman was. But Jesus reads his mind. In other words, he knows perfectly well who this woman is. And he knows perfectly well who Simon is and what Simon is thinking. And therefore, he decides the best way to answer Simon is through a parable. The parable is about two people who owe money. One who owes 50 denarii, or about uh, two months' wages for the average wage earner in Christ's day. And the other owes 10 times that, or about 20 months' wages. The debt collector discovers that neither of them can pay. Yet unlike most collectors who would turn up the heat, he forgives them both. That's the parable. Pretty simple. Now he asks a simple question. Which one of them would love the collector more? Simon the Pharisee gives a clear answer. The one who has been forgiven more. So let me... uh, Let me make a couple of key points here. What Luke is doing is, he's doing this multiple times, is putting one person next to another and calling us to compare them. This was a a common Hebrew way of writing these passages. See, he wants us to make ethical faith and character judgments so that we will understand the truth and empowered by the Holy Spirit to make the choice to pursue acting and living like one or the other. First, we're called to set side by side Simon and Jesus. See, Simon only sees the sinner's past history, the sinner's past record. He sees this woman, and all he can think about is that she is a sinner. She's lived a public, immoral life. He exhibits what Jesus spoke about previously, an attitude of judgment that sees others as less than oneself. He views this sinful woman as unredeemable and unworthy of love and care. While Jesus, on the other hand, sees the potential of what love and forgiveness can do to change a person's heart, to change a person's identity. So while Simon is thinking how horrendous it is that this rabbi would allow someone so sinful and unclean to treat him in this way, Jesus instead points out how the woman cared for him in a way that Simon himself had not. The second major comparison is between Simon the Pharisee and this sinful woman. See, Simon had not extended him the common courtesy of having a servant wash his feet. But this woman lovingly and emotionally washes 
his feet with her tears and dries his feet with her hair, a very loving and sacrificial act for a Jewish woman of that day. Simon had not greeted Jesus with a customary welcome kiss of that culture, but this woman had welcomed him into her heart by humbly kissing his feet. Simon hadn't anointed Jesus' head when he came. It wasn't a requirement, but something that would go above and beyond for a special guest. But this woman sacrificially anointed his feet with very expensive perfume. And so point three on your outline is this. Simon was supposedly the host, but it was this sinful woman who acted with great honor as the real host. The final comparison parallels the two forgiven people in the parable and that of Simon and this woman. See, in the parable, the one who is forgiven little loves little, but the one that is forgiven much loves much. The woman is the one who has been forgiven much, right? The reason for great and passionate love is great forgiveness. The woman stands forgiven of a very large debt. She recognized how great a debtor she was because of her sins. And she wisely recognized that in Jesus she had great forgiveness. So she showed him great love. It was this great and radical love that caused her to humble herself in public. It was this great and radical love that caused her to leave her place as an observer and give herself in loving service to her Lord. On the other hand is Simon the Pharisee, who likely sees himself as a little sinner, or likely no sinner at all. He shows very little gratitude, very little hospitality, very little love, which is really no love at all, because he doesn't recognize the true size of his debt. Jesus now confirms what they believe to be blasphemy. He forgives this woman's sins publicly, because only God can forgive sins, but that doesn't stop Jesus, who is God, the second person of the Trinity. He turns to the woman in the midst of objections and tells her to go in peace because her faith has saved her. So point four on your outline is this. The expression of her radical love is rooted in her deep understanding of the radically profound great forgiveness she has received. And the more she's recognized her great sin and Christ's radical forgiveness, she receives even more. She receives the peace, the shalom, the wholeness that Jesus offers. See, the Pharisee, in his admirable but misplaced desire for purity, separates himself from relating with sinners. He keeps a woman like the one who approaches Jesus at a distance, making it clear to everyone that he doesn't endorse her lifestyle and he won't be soiled by her Jesus, on the other hand, talks and preaches about sin. He never, ever lowers the bar of sin, but he raises it even to the attitude of the heart. But he doesn't isolate himself from sinners. He understands that in order for light to shine in the darkness, light has to go 
where the darkness lives. He doesn't lessen the seriousness of sin even one iota, but in fact he deepens it, not just to the actions, but to the attitudes of the heart. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 make that abundantly clear, don't they? For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then he says this in verse 48, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, this is a a foundational point of Christianity. And it's a radical point. The depth of our sins. See, then this is, by the way, point five on your outline. The forgiveness that we need and the depth of our sins are both profoundly great. But instead of seeing that, we only see how much worse others are, and that's the next point. We instead choose to compare ourselves with others. Minimizing our sins, we conclude that others are greater sinners than ourselves. And this is a complete denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how about you and me? How about the church? See, we're called to remain in the world, but not be of the world. Do we see sinners for who they have been or for what God can make them? This is a foundational for question for us. We as Christ's disciples, we His church, His bride, are we Simon or are we this woman? Do we stand aloof from Jesus? Do we only want so much of Jesus? Do we invite Jesus into our homes, into our lives, the whole of our lives? Or just a small part? Do we truly want to live out the whole gospel? Or only a few dollars worth? Just enough to make me happy, but not so much that it radically changes my life. Only so much to make my life more meaningful, but not so much that it truly makes me hate my lusts and my sinful passions. I certainly don't want so much of Jesus that I start to love my enemies, to love self-denial and even become open to God's leading me to missionary service and poverty-stricken places. I want just enough of Jesus so that I can feel ecstatic in worship but not truly repentant. I want enough to feel loved and empowered, but not enough to be transformed. I want to be part of a group of people like me, a nice community, but not enough of Jesus that I start loving people of different cultures and different skin colors. Just enough of Jesus to make my family secure and my children cared for and well-behaved, but not so much that it changes my ambitions changes my giving. See, Simon little love faith is what we American Christians like. Kent Hughes uh, tells of a large, prestigious church in England 
that had three mission churches under its care. On the first Sunday of the new year, all the members of the mission churches came to the big city church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches, which were located in the slums of the city, were some outstanding cases of conversion, thieves, burglars, and so on. But on that Sunday, all of them knelt side by side at the communion rail of the Church of England. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former burglar kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court of England, the very judge who had sent him to jail where he had served seven years. After his release, this burglar had been converted, had become a Christian, had received Jesus Christ, and in fact had become a Christian worker. Yet as they knelt there, the judge and the former convict, neither one seemed to be aware of the other. After the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The pastor replied, Yeah, but I didn't know that you had noticed. The two walked along in silence for a few more moments, and then the judge said, What a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. Yeah, what a marvelous miracle of God's grace. Then the judge said, But to whom are you referring The pastor said, why to the conversion of that convict? The judge said, I wasn't referring to him. I was thinking of myself. The pastor was surprised. And he replied, you were thinking of yourself. I don't understand. Yes, the judge replied, it was natural for the burglar to receive God's grace when he came out of jail. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him, and when he saw Jesus as his Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him, and he knew how much he needed that help. But look at me. I was taught from the earliest infancy to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond, that I was to say my prayers, to go to church, take communion, and so on. I went through Oxford and got my degrees, I was called to the bar and eventually became a judge. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Him. And I am a greater miracle of His grace. That judge came to the place where he recognized that his sins were very great indeed. Do we love little, which was really not much love at all, Or are we the woman? Do we weep at the feet of Jesus because we understand the depths of our own sins and depravity? Do we wipe his feet with our hair, giving all of ourselves with abandon to our Lord? Is ours a radical, revolutionary, passionate love of Jesus our Lord? Or is it an aloof, little love because of little forgiveness? I think many in churches around the country today are a lot more like Simon than they are like this woman. They stand aloof, not willing to be soiled by the sinfulness of others, never realizing that they are just as sinful, maybe even more so than that woman. My uh, first 
full-time ministry after seminary was pastoring a small church in, in Wichita, Kansas. It was a church that started in a very unusual way. Back in the 60s, during the uh, hippie era, there were uh, traveling evangelists that God had called out to reach the young people of that hippie generation. They were Jesus freaks. Now, uh, one such evangelist had come into Wichita and had drawn large groups of young people to several events over a period of time. A uh, pastor of a medium-sized Presbyterian church in town had observed this ministry, and after that evangelist had left town, he decided to call him and ask him if he'd be willing to come back to Wichita and help him begin a group for those young people at their church. He came, and they had amazing, tremendous success. Very quickly, that group of young youth grew to over 500. Now, the pastor wanted to integrate those young people into the church, and eventually there were barefooted young people beginning to attend the Sunday morning worship service, even sitting on the floors in the aisles. As you can imagine, that caused some serious consternation in that uh, culturally conservative congregation. The elders and members of the church couldn't handle it. They insisted that these young people needed to clean up, dress up, act with a certain decorum before they could attend church. Eventually, the church and this ministry decided to part ways. And a portion of that remnant of those young people eventually became the group of, to which I was called to be the full-time minister years later. Not long after I started at that church, I ran into the former pastor of that Presbyterian church at a local gathering of pastors. He gave me uh, some further insight into the events and told me that shortly after that group of young people had departed, he left the pastorate for some years. And that church, despite still having 200 members, decided to close their doors. See, the problem is that that particular Presbyterian church started to have a Simon the Pharisee perspective on Jesus and on life. They looked at those young people much like Simon looked at that woman. They'd forgotten that as the church, we are that sinful woman, broken over our own sins and out of response for the forgiveness that we received in Jesus Christ with great passion, we are called to give ourselves fully to our Lord, time, talent, and treasures. See, there's even more to that revolutionary woman. A woman in Jesus' day would rarely dare to think about publicly approaching a rabbi. This was very risky because women didn't do those kinds of things. The fact that she was known as a sinner made the risk even greater since a religious teacher like Jesus would most likely reject her. Yet her gratitude and humility were so radical, so marvelous, that drawing near to Jesus was all she could see. She counted the cost and figured that Jesus was worth the risk. And Jesus honored her. I wonder how many of us today would be that bold. How many of us would come forward and identify with Jesus in the face of public rejection 
and public ridicule. And think about this woman. This woman expressed herself with actions. She never said a word. Her actions of deep love and devotion to Jesus shouts volumes. Throughout eternity, this woman will be known as that sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. I can only hope to be known that way, in small part. See, Jesus knew her heart. Despite all the public shame and scorn she received, Jesus saw her and loudly proclaimed that she is forgiven. She has received Him with passion. I wonder what a church looks like when it's more identified with this woman than with Simon. See, the world looks at much of the evangelical world uh, church today and sees Simon. I pray every day that that isn't true of any of the churches where I serve. I hope that's not true of Parkway. And I ask you to pray with me that this is never true of us. Point seven on your outline is this. The, wor- the, wor- the world hears the term evangelical Christian and thinks Simon. What happens when the world looks at us and sees this woman? How do our neighbors, friends, and family look at you? Do they see more of the sinful woman or Simon? See, the woman teaches us something else, and this is point eight on your outline. We cannot be spectators to the ministries of the church. Rather, we're called to use our gifts and resources in serving Jesus. We are called to love much, not love little. Not place a tip in the offering plate and help a tiny bit in the ministries of the church. See, the women that follow in the list are the beginning, in that beginning of chapter 8, are also exemplifying great love. See, their ministry is to minister to others who minister. And by the way, this is a remarkable few verses, affirming the role of women in a first century culture where they were either seen as property or just invisible. Mary Magdalene serves after having seven demons removed by Jesus. Joanna is the wife of Herod's steward, Cusa, and it tells us that the message of forgiveness in Jesus has reached even the palace. They have placed their faith in Jesus. They too have received great forgiveness, and they immediately give of their resources to enable Jesus to spread the kingdom. The Father's radical forgiveness in His Son, Jesus, calls for radical love. These women also exemplify what that looks like in tangible ways. They minister to Jesus and the disciples on two levels, personal involvement and contribution of their resources. No matter what your view of the role in women and leadership in churches, the key message here is that all are called to serve the Lord by serving one another. Notice that it's Jesus, not us, who has the right to forgive sins. He's the one who calls the heart to change. We as believers serve and point to Him. Any righteousness we possess comes because He has worked in our lives. We haven't earned it. We receive it because of grace. 
We are all in the position of the woman at Jesus' feet. And we must never forget it. So we can show others the way to the feet of Christ. See, the story of the sinful woman teaches a very important lesson about the depth of love for God. The greater our understanding that God has dealt with us mercifully, the greater love we will have for Him in return. And this is point nine on your outline. If our love for God is cold, it may well be because we have come to think He owes us love. And it might just be because we have forgotten or misunderstood the gospel. See, this story tells us that the gospel is like a, a banker wanting us to pay a mortgage after we've lost our job. But rather than foreclosing on us, the banker himself writes a check that pays the entirety of our mortgage. If your banker did that, uh, would you be grateful? And tell all your friends about how wonderful he is? See, Jesus is our spiritual banker. It is he who has paid our entire debt, not because we are such wonderful people. He pays our debt while we are his enemies, while we want nothing to do with him. And the deeper we understand the depths of his forgiveness and mercy in the midst of our hostility and disobedience, the greater will be our response of love. And these women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna, many others show us how that radical love in response to revolutionary forgiveness takes daily shape in our lives. You know, I've been around churches where there was more love for programs and buildings than there was for people. Sadly, we think this love for Christ is really shown only when things are going well for us when we are healthy and wealthy. But that's rarely so. It comes from a broken and contrite spirit that knows how desperately lost and in debt we are and in complete and growing gratitude gives out of the depth of forgiveness that we have known. Elizabeth Prentice, the wife of a Presbyterian minister, spent most of her adult life as an invalid. She seldom knew a day without constant pain throughout the entirety of her body. Yet she was described by her friends as a bright-eyed, cheery woman with a keen sense of humor. Elizabeth was always strong in faith and encouraging to others until tragedy struck the Prentice family beyond what even she could bear. The loss of their children brought great sorrow to Elizabeth's life. For weeks, no one could console her. In her diary, she wrote these words, empty hands, a worn-out, exhausted body, and unutterable longing to flee from a world that has so many sharp experiences. During that period of grief, Elizabeth cried out to God, asking him to minister her to broken spirit. It was then she understood on a greater level how much forgiveness she had truly received in Christ. And it was at that time that Elizabeth's story became a living testimony to the church. Over 100 years, the church has been encouraged as they sing the words, 
that have been penned by Elizabeth Prentice in her deepest sorrow. More love to Thee, O Christ. More love to Thee. Hear Thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to Thee. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest, now Thee alone I seek. Give what is best. This all my prayer shall be more love, O Christ, to Thee. Let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Sweet are Thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me more love, O Christ, to Thee. Then shall my latest breath whisper Thy praise. This be the parting cry of my heart shall raise. This still its prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to Thee. Let's pray together. Loving, forgiving, and merciful God, You are truly forgiving. When we realize the depths of our own sins and how far short we have fallen, then we realize how much love we owe Thee. Thank You, Lord, for Your amazing grace. Thank you for that you have saved a wretched sinner, even one like me. Thank you for your amazing mercy. Something that I don't deserve one iota of. Thank you for this sinful woman who reminds us who we truly are who we truly must be as we move forward into the new year and as we seek your revival, your revitalization in our midst here at Parkway, as we are reminded who we are, reminded of the vision you have given us. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing love. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.